Hey, everybody. Welcome to this incredible episode of The Charlie Kirk Show. I am joined by two dear friends of mine that I've known for quite some time and have been through some fun things together. Amen. Congressman Bob McEwen from Ohio. That's right, Charlie. Great and to be with you. Rob McCoy. Uh, Congressman McEwen is currently running Council for National Policy. CNP. CNP. And Pastor Rob McCoy is America's pastor <laughs> and has kept his church open despite all the lockdowns. We are going to get into a lot of stuff. But first, Congressman, introduce yourself to our audience. Well, it's a delight to be here. I'm a fan of yours, Charlie. And during this critical time when people are questioning about what America is or where it's headed, I think it's appropriate just to stop and ask, why is America different from someplace else? Four percent of the population of the world call themselves Americans. Amen. And yet every year they write more books, more plays, more symphonies, more copyrights, inventions. For thousands of years, people hoped to someday fly. It was the Americans that invented the airplane and the light bulb and the telegraph, the telephone, the global positioning system, put men on the moon. Right now there's a ship parking in the Hong Kong Harbor or in Singapore using a global positioning system conceived, invented, and maintained by Americans. A Mercedes dealer in Buenos Aires is ordering a part in Stuttgart using an internet conceived, invented, and maintained. No nation in the world has ever blessed the nation, blessed the world like America does. Four percent, and yet it is the that which is, secures the rest of the world. You know, for hundreds of years, the Britannia ruled ruled the waves. When a British ship was overrun in the Persian Gulf, as happened over three hundred times last year. Where can a ship or a person turn on the high seas? Only to the 327,000 Americans that wear the uniform of the United States Navy. The United States is the standard for righteousness and stability in the world. I got you. And it's been entrusted to us. And if we dare let somebody else take it, it, it is the, the those that hate freedom, those that hate abundance, want to destroy our country. And now you and I have to make sure that that doesn't happen. I get stretch marks, stretch marks on my brain every time I'm in his presence. I love being with you, Bob. It's an honor to be with you, Rob. So uh, is America a racist country? You know, you, <laughs> you asked the, the question that everyone has to address. That is, if America is so terrible, why is it that everybody wants to come here? America accepts more immigrants than the rest of the world combined. You talk about refugees, more refugees than the entire rest of the world. I met with some Iranian folks, and they were quoting the New York Times about how America was, was closing its doors. We take more than the entire rest of the planet. Why would people come to a place that was racist? Why is it that over 90% of the people that come here are people, quote, of color? If, if America was even thought about doing such things, those people aren't foolish. They've learned that if they want to accuse America of something, they can deny some special privilege. If I'm doing something wrong and you you catch me, I immediately want to point to something else. And for those that are trying to undo our country, they, rather than face what they've done about burning down a building or stealing from someone else, they want to point to say, at over their shoulder to, while you're looking there, they grab your wallet and run. Of course, America's not, not a racist country. It's the most... I tell you this, find any place on the planet where ethnicities live as cooperatively as they do in America. It is the example for the rest of the planet. My daughter spent a, a year in Rwanda. Those folks, you cannot tell them apart. 80% are Hutu, 20% are Tutsi. When 80% voted to kill the other 20%, they chopped a million people to death with machetes, but it's estimated that a fourth of the people that they killed were really Hutus. 
Now, that's what the rest of the world is like when it doesn't have the freedom of respect for life that comes from respect for God, which is what America is. Are, so you bring up 80% decided to kill the 20%. Let's go to this direction. In less than a year. Less than a year. In 90 days. In 90 days with machetes, not with, not with sophisticated so, ovens. So you're talking about the Rwandan genocide, yes. Yes. correct? Children, kids do not know about this. They're not taught it in schools. Let's walk through the, some of the history, then I have a follow-up question about it. Well, there's a reason why people come to, come to America. And what makes America different? <laughs> Number one is our rights do not come from the majority. In other words, we're not a democracy. In a democracy, rights come from the majority, whoever's, whoever has the most votes. I was just writing, are we a democracy? <laughs> well, a democracy. So you, so you totally obliterated my follow-up question. And <laughs> you say, what is a democracy? It gets you mean, in your head. You mean when George Bush says that we're a democracy, we're not really a democracy? Well, we use the term democracy because we elect people. Yes. But our, in a democracy, the rule of law is established by the majority. And America was, is un unique and different to the rest of the world because our rights do not come from the majority. That's why the word democracy does not exist in any of our founding documents. They despised nor in, it. Nor any of the 50 constitutions of the 50 states. Mm. Why? Our rights do not come from the majority. They come from God. And as on the Jefferson Memorial, the God who gave us life gave us liberty at the same time. So you see the sequence that if you, if you want to take a person's liberty, you have to get rid of God. Once you've gotten rid of God, then I can take your life. And once I can take away life, then any, any politician, any politician that will take away innocent life will not hesitate to take your liberty. There it is. And so when you ask the question, that's who they, that's who they are. So are, are we one of those? No. You can vote in America 95 to 5 to kill Jews. So what? It can't happen because in America, our rights come from God who protects life and we're the only place. So Jews knew they could be chased from all over the planet if they could just get under the canopy of protection of the American flag that they would be safe. And they are and they do. Amen. I'm, I'm sitting back and I, I told you this guy is a storehouse of knowledge. And, and you, you declared that he's one of the most underutilized men That's in America. Correct. I'm sitting with the two most underutilized players in the uh, conservative well, Bench. You're half right, but I will I will tell you just no, sitting I'm here. Double right. Well, I appreciate that, <laughs> but I, uh, Charlie, you and I are both. I'm just blown away. I just I seriously I just want to get out of the way. I, I I'm well, I'm a fly on the wall. Color commentary. How about that? Yeah, I'm happy to do that. <laughs> so, Bob, this is a very important point you're making because even some conservatives at times have said a couple things recently. Number one, we're not going to say any names. I never do that, but we can talk generally. Some have written extensive opinion articles saying America's a racist, systemically racist country founded in 1619. Mm. I want you to address the 1619 lie. But before you do, can you please also just build out more why it's dangerous for us to accept the idea that we're a democracy? What makes a democracy and a republic different? It, in a democracy, rights... I, I remember when we went to vote on Obamacare, uh, Pelosi took the, the well of the House and she grabbed the podium on the Democrat side and she said, today we are going to create a right to health care. And her side all clapped and cheered. Well, just gently let's think about that. If politicians can create a right, politicians can do away with, with a, right. a right. And that's what had our founders so afraid that if we allow the mob to decide that one day they get mad at folks of a particular color 
or a particular ethnicity, and we want to take their rights. Or religion. Or religion. And so we want to protect them from that. And so they, they very carefully crafted the place that, as I mentioned, this little 4% of the population of the world created more wealth than the other 96% combined throughout all recorded history. Now, why? Why is that? Well, it's because we recognize that God gave it to us. Well, I wanted, I wanted to tag on what Charlie was saying, and you did a, a wonderful insight when I heard you. I've heard you speak a number of times. But you, you, you speak of this idea of a democracy and a constitutional republic. And, of course, as I've heard Eric Metaxas say, uh, quoting Ben Franklin, when the woman asked him, what kind of government have you given us? And a republic, madam, if you can keep it. And you have this unbelievable ability to recount uh, what occurred in the Constitutional Convention because America had come up to a conflict. They had examined all of the different forms of government throughout history. And here they were at a, at a problem with 13 colonies, some of them slaveholding, uh, some of them more populated than others. And they were wanting equal representation, but there was an argument taking place. And they came up with one of the most remarkable resolutions to it by a bicameral legislature. But that occurred with Ben Franklin in the midst of it all. Can you recount that for the listeners? Well, Benjamin Franklin uh, actually was considered the most respected man on earth and most admired all over the planet. He, he had his signature on the first three documents, the Declaration of Independence, U- U.S. Constitution, and the Paris Cre- uh, Peace Agreement. And incredibly, the one guy we haven't made movies about. Go, go ahead. And he had gout, too, which I, I the, that's the only way I can uh, relate to him. But go ahead. Thanks. Well, and, and, and he, was, he was in his 80s, and he was one of only four people that uh, had been there at the signing of the Declaration of Independence that were also in Constitution Hall. Now, let me just say where, where we are, and that is that at the end of the... Uh, of the Revolutionary War. There was no government, therefore there was no way to pay people. And so they were trying to figure out a way to do that. And so they created the Northwest Territory, which is where Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, and Minnesota and Michigan are from. And they gave land grants. And in there it said the land north of the Ohio River, but there shall be unanimously, there shall be no slavery. Amen. Unanimously, they said now, and immediately some folks from the Southern states said, oh, I see what's coming. That, and they voted for it. They said, but I see that. If I convince them to submit so that they're going to have New Yorkers and people from Massachusetts and Pennsylvania making decisions for them, that's going to be a hard sell. But if I also tell them that they absolutely uh, cannot have slavery, they're going to have to do away with it tomorrow, uh, I can't sell both of those, and so this isn't going to work. That's question number one. The other part is that half of the country lived in five, in three states, half the live, country lived in 10 states. 50% lived in three, 50% lived in 10. The 10 aren't going to be dictated by the three and vice versa, so the thing began to break apart. That's all there is to it. It's now gone on for six weeks, and uh, they began to, uh, George Mason, who was George Washington's next door neighbor and best friend, he was uh, started to leave. Washington walked along the side of his, of his carriage, pleading with him to, to, to stay. This chance might not come again. And Mason said, George, I, I can't sit around and talk about politics all summer. I got other things to do. He said, no, just try it. And so they were able to corral him back again into that same room where 11 years earlier, they had written the Declaration of Independence. And that is the first time that Benjamin Franklin asked to speak. When he got up to speak, he was very well respected. And so everybody began to listen. He said, Mr. President, he said, I'm an old man. But one thing I have learned is that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow could not fall without his notice, is it probable that an empire could rise without his aid? 
He said, we've been instructed in the sacred writings, except the Lord built the house. They labor in vain to build it. Well, I believe this, that we shall be no more successful in the building of this political building than were the builders of Babel. He said, in the conflict with Great Britain, we had daily prayer in this room. Our prayers were heard, and they were graciously answered. Amen. And then he said, have we now forgotten this powerful friend? Or do we imagine we no longer need him? Mm. He said, and then he went through, made some more references, and then he uh, asked to move that they recess and begin each session then with prayer. One of the things that he mentioned, Rob, as you said, he said, we've looked at all of the uh, forms of government around the planet. Now, why is that important? Wisdom is proper use of knowledge. Yes. So knowledge is good. But wisdom is the proper use of knowledge. You can teach a 10-year-old how to drive. Why do you not throw your keys to the 10-year-old? Why? Because he lacks wisdom, the proper use of the knowledge. Now, wisdom comes from two sources. Wisdom comes from experience, your own or someone else's. So you, you learn from your elders and by reading books and things. But there are some things we've never experienced before. And so the scripture says that if any man lack wisdom, James, let him ask of God who gives to all men liberally, and he doesn't scold us for asking. So, so Benjamin Franklin said, we've looked at all of the forms of government that have existed, each one having their flaws. None of them were applicable to our, to our situation. He said, in this situation, crawling around in the darkness, no one has, has decided to call upon the Father of lights. In other words, we've been here in the dark, nobody's flipped on, yeah. on, on the lights. He said, so then he said, let's ask God for his guidance, as the scripture said. Once they did that, they began over the next five and a half weeks to write the Constitution of the United States, creating the oldest government on the planet. Well, that, the that, oldest government under one birth certificate. The, every government on Earth has changed repeatedly since then. We have one of the youngest countries, yeah. but the oldest government, everyone has made judgments since then, and yet it's been available as a template for anyone else, but they haven't used it, and that nation is the one that has prospered as no other nation has. Now, that's the competition that they, they want to, to but, destroy. Now, let me just say something also about Benjamin Franklin. I remember one time after I was speaking, a fellow wrote to me a note, and he mentioned that, that uh, he had 54 uh, children out of wedlock. Uh, and, and now just stop and think about that for a moment. <laughs> the absurdity of such a statement is, is beyond comprehension. But let us, the fact is that if I want to destroy something and I want to convince you that you're wrong, or that you use the wrong toothpaste, for example, as Bill Federer mentions, first of all, I can't just say you need to have my toothpaste. I need to say, you know, that toothpaste that you use is really making your teeth yellow. And it's not very attractive. And, 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 and once I convince you that, that, then you're open. Then once you're open, now I can say, you got to try what I have. And so when America obviously went from nowhere, absolutely poor people, people did not sell their castles, get in their clipper ships, and come to America to eke out an existence of the forest. The people that came here were poor. They had nothing except freedom and opportunity and became the richest, most powerful nation Amen. on earth. So when, 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 they, when they did that, they said, how, do, how can we undo that? There's only one way. I have to convince them that they were evil. And so after World War I, they began this idea of de- uh, constructing our founders. We can find no reference to promiscuity on the part of Benjamin Franklin prior to 1920. And once they began to build that idea that somehow revisionist were history, evil, and then well, people began to no longer respect them, and then they could begin to do what they're doing now. The, the, 
Charlie wants to jump on something real quick, but I just I want you to emphasize this. When when they came back from three days of fasting and prayer at the Constitutional Convention, they came up with that brilliant idea of the bicameral legislature. Can you explain that to the folks, why it was so significant? Well, it, it, how do you have a legislature and represent everybody equal, fair because everybody wants to be equal? And so they said, well, why don't we do and this? And you can jump in the Electoral College on this, too, if you want. Yeah, they said, so, so, all right, if all of you want to be equal, then every state's going to be equal. We're going to have a Senate. Everybody's going to be treated equally. Are you happy about that? Okay, fine. What about the large states? All right, we're going to create a House of Representatives, and they're going to be based upon the number of people in each state. And the two of you are going to have to agree before it goes to the president for him to sign. And if the three of you all agree, then you can make a law. I said, all right, that's fine. But what about slavery? Well, all right, I understand that. We're not going to have slavery. That's for sure. But if you're going to have to sell it, we're going to, we can't sell it all at once. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to put in the Constitution that, you can't, that no one— when they all get together and start to come after you, you can't do that for 20 years. That is, for the 20 years, you cannot prevent the importation of slaves. And so, when was that? 1787. Well, 10 years of 1797, 10 years of 1807. So, on the first day that America could pro prohibit slavery, an example to the world was on January 1st, 1808. And that law was written in March of 1807, signed by the President of the United States, Thomas Jefferson, who said we're going to end the slave trade. That is, no one can bring any slaves into America. It's going to atrophy, and we're going to destroy it. Now, the founders, George Washington and these folks that were born into the slave situation, prior to them, all the way back to the beginning of Scripture, for thousands of years, slavery was everywhere. Every culture. It was ubiquitous. It was everywhere. These men... These men that we've seen the statues abused over these last recent weeks, people like Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, yeah. George Washington, these men decided that they were going to do something that had never been done, and that is that they were going to end slavery. And from then until today, slavery has been anathema. Now, throughout 14 of the, of the 18 largest countries with slavery to this day are on the African continent, and there are places in, in the Middle East that still have slavery, but it's been an anathema. It's been hated because these men, these men ended slavery as an option and created free enterprise. Now, there are those that didn't like that, and brother, they kicked and screamed, and we had to have a war to end it, and then they tried to do it. We had to mend the Constitution, yes. and to this day, they're still doing it, and it always has been, but that was not America did. America didn't do that. A handful of people that are in a certain so party. I want to make sure this. I'm getting these, this right. So 1787, there was a law that was passed in the Constitution, you're saying? It's, it's in the Constitution. That for 20-year ban on slavery. It said that you couldn't import slaves. For yeah. They didn't use the term slave. My, my no, memory doesn't no serve one. me for that part of the Constitution. But the, the, so then you're saying in 1807, President Thomas Jefferson, third, third American president, the expansionist and also the author of the Declaration, he signed a bill in Cong of Congress in March of 1807 to be effective in 1808 to ban the import of slaves. And Correct. did that go into effect? Yes, it did. So yes, even did. for the southern states. So the slave trade ended on... So this, but the slave practice continued for uh, the next uh, couple decades. Pardon me. The, the importation of slaves yes. ended on January 1st, 1808 yeah. in America. Wow. That was the first nation for the world to set the example. And quite frankly, everything was going fine. Uh, slavery was atrophying. It was about to die. And then we get back to it. And that is in, in the... Yeah, that's really interesting, Bob. I haven't I haven't heard it explained like that because I, I must have I must I I just think at times oh yeah so the Civil War is basically was the moment it all kind of came to a head. What you're saying and I've said this before that Vermont was the first state to abolish slavery in 1777 because they were inspired by the writings. But Thomas Jefferson, even someone who owned slaves himself, 
signed a bill that said no more imports of slaves. Correct. And, and of course, if you if you turn slaves out, they would be on their own. They would have to buy property and provide for themselves. And so that transition was, was complicated. And the compassionate was that many of them left their estates to them so that when they died, then they were, they were given their freedom along with the money that they had yeah, to survive. So, so basically... Uh, Article 1, Section 9, Clause 1 is what Bob's referring to. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. So in the Constitution was already a provision for the sunset of slavery. Right. And, and, and so then it was atrophying. It was almost all done until the most, so, one of the most important elections in our history was in 1828. So, so we, should be un- we should be unapologetic as conservatives and constitutionalists oh, and Americans. Oh, oh, as Americans. Say not, it wasn't even that much of an evolution. It was we had put the plan in place to get rid of this thousand-year sinful practice. And, and the three-fifths compromise was part of that. And, and it was, and it was well, happening. Three-fifths came later. Well, right. no, three, three-fifths w- w- was in there for that purpose because here, here was the fight. Because the, but we got attacked as three-fifths saying that, oh, it was subhuman, but it was actually be- a better deal for those of us that want full dignity. And so they nothing. couldn't have representation in, so the, in the House. It, Bob? Yeah. And, and, and here's the thing. Those of us who, who are progenitive did not want slavery. We said those are people. And, and so therefore, if they're people, then they need to be given their independence. So the South said, no, we don't want them to be independent. And so therefore, we don't want to count them as people. And we said, well, if that happens, then we, we uh, wouldn't have as many people in, in the Congress. They said, no, here's what we want. We want to count them as people, but we don't want to be considered as people. And so now, you, now you've got that dilemma. And so the North said, if you, if you want to count them completely, then you need to give them their freedom. And so the compromise was that they would be counted as three-fifths. Why did they want to count them as completely? Because they wanted to have more and more representatives to make sure that have they more didn't people show in the up House. in Congress. The North wanted to be counted as zero until such time as they got their freedom. And so that was, that was the compromise to get them to, and they were progressing well until in the election of 1828 is when the most anti-slavery president in the history of the United you, you, States. This is, this is critical. John Quincy Adams was defeated by a man from the West, from over the mountain, the first genuine slave trader, a man who bought slaves in New Orleans and came up and sold them along the, the Tennessee River, a man by the name of Andrew Jackson, came in and ripped that apart. And made a, a, a compromise in 18, by the way, the first Democrat president, 1830, to bring in a slave state in, in Maine and to make a compromise whereby we bring in a, a slave state and a free state and have, still have the balance in the Senate. And with that, tore the scab off of the scar and began to ooze the chaos that took place. And from then on, from Andrew Jackson in, in eight, from 1828, he took office in 1829. So for, from 1830 to 1860, that 30-year period is known as the Jacksonian era. And they, sta- they stacked the Supreme Court. And during the Jacksonian era, that is when the Democrat Party and the Whigs fought back and forth. The Whigs did not want to have slavery at all. The Democrat Party wanted to have slavery. And so they alternated back and forth until finally in, in 1857, when James Buchanan took office in March of 1857, uh, the next week, the Supreme Court made a ruling that was written by Roger Taney. Roger Taney was, James, was, was Andrew Jackson's campaign manager and his attorney general. And Andrew Jackson put him on the Supreme Court. So in the Supreme Court, then he wrote the, the uh, Dred Scott decision, which said that black people are not people. Their property. They can be bought and sold like furniture. They are chattel. And with that, the whole, the Whig Party, the Whig Party, which, uh, you know, was made up of uh, 
of those, you know, people with no backbone. I could name some people that we currently have. And, and they, said, they said this. They said, well, okay, uh, we can't argue about this anymore. It's time to move on. The court has spoken. This is the way it is. Don't talk. We can't talk about abortion. These things. It's time to move on. Time to move on. And, and the, the American people said, no, 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 no. <laughs> you got it all wrong. And in a matter of about 24 months, the Whig Party disappeared. The Republican Party erupted for the purpose of ending slavery. Can I can I jump in real quick? Um, 1857, which isn't part you do know this part of history, but it's not one that's going to be taught in history books. But in 1857, it was one of the great awakenings in America spiritually. Jeremiah Lamphere, second floor of the Dutch Reformed Church in New York, starts a prayer service that Horace Greeley, uh, the newspaper editor, he sent out a reporter to try to see how many of these that had grown across New York and across the country. And with the traffic and everything, he had estimated over 100,000 people every noon were gathering for prayer, and it created one of the greatest revivals in less than a year in a nation of, what, 30 million people, over a million uh, came to faith in Christ, mm. which ushers in this conviction of, like, Josiah Wedgwood and, and all of these folks starting to realize that these are human beings. We're, we, we need to push back. So it gives a spiritual backbone to the—because, Charlie, as you always say, uh, politics is downstream from culture. So as the church engages in this critical issue of slavery and, and Imago Dei, the image of, of, of God and man, and, and Josiah Wedgwood, am I, am I not a man? Am I not, I, am I, I'm, I'm a man, not a slave. And, and he, he, draws, he creates that drawing, and it creates this move towards abolition in the country. And now this Republican Party starts in a, in a congregational church in Ripon, Wisconsin, with a handful of people with the sole purpose of abolishing slavery. So, and the American people em embraced it, and uh, three years later, elect the president of the United States, and immediately this, the, the states that wanted to keep their slavery, the people that wanted to keep their slavery, said, obviously, the American people have voted this isn't going to work, and so they began to withdraw and to secede. Back in those days, the president didn't take office till March, and so between November and March, uh, the states seceded, and they formed what was called the Confederacy. Now, that wasn't America that did that. That's a handful of people that believe that race should be the, the primary factor. So we fought the fight. Uh, the, the, the freedom people won. The Confederacy was defeated. And uh, then for the next 10 presidents, eight of them were Republicans. America grew into the richest, most powerful nation on earth. To this day, in every county in America, the Democrats meet to have a Jackson Day dinner and the Republicans meet to have a Lincoln Day dinner because we believe, Republicans believe, that God made us and at the foot of the cross, we are all equal. We, neither man nor neither rich nor poor, neither male nor female, nor nor slave nor free. But we are all in all. That is, we we are all equal. And America has always stood for that. Now, that doesn't mean that every person who lives in America believes in it, because all you have to do is turn on the news, and you can see that's not the case. There's a handful of folks that constantly want to speak about race or gender, because they are racist and they are sexist. But America is not that way. And so it, it, took, a, it took a continual fight. We, we thought that that would be enough, but they wouldn't treat them equally. So we had to pass the 14th Amendment, which is equal protection. We thought that would solve the problem. But then in, in those Democrat areas, I'll say it again, in those Democrat areas, they wouldn't let blacks uh, vote. The 15th Amendment didn't give blacks the right to vote. Let's just get that clear. Because blacks have been voting and been elected to office throughout the history of the country. It said, if you read it, it says no state shall deny. In other words, it said to Democrats, quit it. 
And, of course, not one single Democrat voted for the 15th Amendment. Nope. And, and then when uh, – uh, the, so 15th Amendment gave them freedom, and then the 16th Amendment uh, the right to vote. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Charlie. So, Bob, <coughs> one of the biggest lies taught to our kids, one of the things that is pervasive in the media, and I want you to dispel it, that the party switched. <laughs> Can I add one that will tie in with your question? What are you going to say? No. I mean, you probably would, but I'm nodding. I'm nodding. All right. Thank you. I, and, and dispel if I've got this incorrect, but one of the most critical elections in the history of the country, you, you had Reconstruction that was on Lincoln's heart. He gets assassinated. Johnson takes over. And then we have Grant. And then the most contentious election in the history of the country was 1876 at the centennial of our celebration as a nation for 100 years. And it was tied and and the 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 popular vote went to Tilden and and then the Republican candidate didn't have the popular vote and then the electoral college was tied and they contested for that but they decided to give the Republicans power of the presidency as long as they would remove federal troops from the south protecting the votes of the of of black Americans and that's where this switch started to occur cuz we just well, left them devastated well the, the the point was that they they said that we we are now, and where did the switch occur? That was Charlie's. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they say they said we're part of the country, and so we want the troops taken out. And so you always hear about that. That uh, in Virginia, twenty years ago, they elected the first Republican since Reconstruction. In Georgia, they elected the first Republican senator since Reconstruction. So during that period, right after the war, the the American military was there to make sure that everybody was treated equally. In order to bring peace in the country, they decided that they would remove the troops. From, from the South and allowed them to run their own states. At that point, we discovered that Democrats are Democrats. And so Democrats did away with, with people being able to, to be treated fairly. And Jim Crow laws. They came up with Jim Crow laws. And, and, and I, I, we need to make this perfectly clear. Anybody listening at this moment, I, I, I want you to I would ask your attention that all of these things that are America did this and America did that, America didn't do any of that stuff. Democrats did certain things which are a scar on their party and thereby splashes on the rest of us. Let's take Rosa Parks. Everybody talks about Rosa Parks she, in America. She couldn't sit up front of the bus. Nonsense. That b bus company was the National City Bus Company in Chicago, Illinois. It ran buses in 38 cities in 16 states. You can look it up. They wouldn't mistreat their customers. It was the Democrat City Council in Montgomery, Alabama that said that blacks couldn't sit up front. Well, they're not going to mistreat their customers. They're going to let them sit where they want. Then they said, if you do not enforce this, we're going to take away your franchise to have the bus company here. Now, don't be blaming America for us. We're, that is an embarrassment. It offends us no end. Republicans, I ha had eight great uncles that fought in the war. Six of them were in the Andersonville prison, uh, starving to death in Georgia. Uh, people risked their lives in order that we could all be treated equally, which is what America stands for, the Amen. Democrat Party. The Democrat Party, from then until this very day, continues to talk about people. They cannot say the word American. They have to say African American or Hispanic American or left-handed America or whatever. They always have. They 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 the divide, America, divide, right? divide. So, but so Bob, narrowing on this even further though, because I get the, I, we get lots of questions and everyone can email us questions. Freedom at charliekirk.com. And one of the biggest things and I I was taught this. I went to public education for high school and it's taught very clearly and it is somewhat persuasive where basically they say the good guys and bad guys, right? The people that want what's best for humanity and not. Good guys today are the Democrats, but the good guys back then were actually the Republicans who then became the Democrats. Mm -hmm. 
so can, can you just help break that apart? Because they, they use evidence of the Southern strategy and all this. I have become quite well versed in this, but you know it better than I do. No, so no, walk I, us through we'll it. Do, we'll, do, we'll do it together. And that is that the Democrats, that's appropriate term because they believe in democracy. Mm. They believe that you can make a ruling in Washington state in 2020 that you have to wear masks unless you are of color and that you have to wear masks if you're white, but not if you're not white. Now, they, w they can do that in 2020 because they continue to look at people in their individual groups. That's what Democrats do have done, and that's what, that's what they, they did. Now, in the South, they, they, people didn't want to invest there. It didn't grow. It was, po yeah. it was much poorer because that existed. In 1952, when Dwight, let me just go back to what? One of my favorite presidents, by the way, yeah. Dwight D. Eisenhower, underappreciated in the Republican Party. And growing, and they just did a thing on C-SPAN in which they had all of these all of these historians, and they voted him number six, which the very last time they voted him, he was, he, a true patriot. He was 19th. And Calvin Coolidge, I dig him. Yeah. I, I could go on for Eisenhower for a long time. <laughs> well, and, and so what, what Rob referred to was when the Democrats took control, they passed a thing called posse capitanus, and that is that you cannot use the military for police purposes within the confines of the United States. The reason that, that, that uh, Donald Trump did not send troops into Seattle, the reason that George Bush didn't send troops into New Orleans was because under the principle of Democrats Institute of Posse Comitatus is that unless there is a national emergency- Or you, you sign the Insurrection Act. And, and declare, declare the country is, is under attack. Martial law. Martial law that unless you, you declare an insurrection like that, that you cannot send troops at Katrina. And so when, he called, when George Bush called the governor, she said, fine, all of her friends got around. He's going to get credit for cleaning it up. She called him back, and they went back and forth for 45 minutes. She said, I, I don't ask you until finally the dam did break. Everybody's in trouble. And, and five days later, she, she tells the president. Interestingly enough, that was in New Orleans, and that's what passed the law originally. Now, why am I talking about that? I'm talking about that because that's the way the South operated, that you couldn't have soldiers, and so they could mistreat people. So when you want to talk... You want to talk about uh, lynchings, uh, when you would talk about the KKK, when you talk about all those things that happened that, that, that they can quote to you in, in college classes nowadays, it all took place under Democrat control. Yep. Well, after World War II and after the communists uh, were, were given Eastern and Central Europe, in the 1952 election, they elected the five-star general, the, the commander of, of troops in Germany, in, in Europe, the, the American president a five-star general, and he, when he looked at the law about how blacks were being treated, he did something that perhaps no one else could have done. But he was a five-star general, yes. one of only the four <laughs> people that had never served in political office, and he sent the troops in. And he sent the troops into Little Rock, Arkansas, Little Rock, to Arkansas. say, quit it. You, that person, is allowed to go to that school regardless of her skin color. Do you understand me? And then he appointed judges that began to implement the law, and when they did that, began to break apart the solid Democrat South. Now, when they did that, for the very first time, when they let everybody vote, then you see that for the first time in over 100 years, Republicans began to get elected because yes, they, couldn't, yeah. they couldn't steal the votes. But they, they, then they, they would say, just let's mm -hmm. flex this out. Well, why did Strom Thurmond switch parties then? Because he's the only person that did. Uh, Strom Thurmond was an independent sort. that was, And, a, and they, they use this all the time, just yeah, so you know. It's was one a, of their top pieces of evidence on their shelf. He, he was a Dixiecrat in 1948. 
and and he uh, was disliked among Democrats as well. And he actually had a had a come to Jesus meeting. He he had a uh, had a uh, change of heart, and he began hiring African Americans on his staff. And uh, as you can ask his successor, which is an African American, Senator Scott, and he'll tell you how that he his heart changed and he changed his party. And and it was the only person that we know of. The only person, certainly in the Congress, House, or Senate, that switched the parties. He's the only one, so they could ride that horse. But you served with Strom. Very well. I knew Strom very well. for 47 years or Mm -hmm. something. Everybody served with Strom. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Jesus served with Strom. So a couple couple thoughts on the the great switch, which I think is the fundamental biggest lie that we tolerate our kids to be fed. I think it is the lie of which so many other lies are able to – spread. Mm-hmm. It is that it is one of the tributaries that affects everything because if you believe the party's switched, what you're really saying in essence is that now Republicans are the bad guys, mm-hmm. right? If, in mm-hmm. this in this game of cowboy and Indians, mm-hmm. right? For lack of a better term, just use a metaphor, we're on the we're wearing the bad jersey, they're wearing the good jersey. Mm-hmm. And you can't accept that especially when you look at the complete arc of American history. Here's a couple things that I use that are very helpful. Why is it as the South became considerably less racist, it became more Republican and wealthier? Right. So if to, to keep it the logic according to the left, of which there is none, wouldn't it be when the South becomes less racist, they should have stayed Democrat? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. If they're truly the mm-hmm. kind of wait, we wear the good jerseys, they wear the bad. Also, who actually cared about skin color in 1864, the Republican Party or the Democrat Party? Who cares about skin color today, the Republican Party or the Democrat Party? Exactly. The hyperfixation on race. And the final thing is this, as you wonderfully articulated. It's, it's an interesting thing. When you, when you go through presidents, presidents that oversee great periods of po- prosperity are usually overlooked by historians. And we as the Republican Party, we just don't talk about Dwight D. Eisenhower enough. Now, people say that I didn't like the tax rates and all that. I'm like, that actually is not my total definition of what a conservative is, because some of that was out of his control and some of it was somewhat needed to fund the country after the structural deficit after World War II. But he was a pro-family defense of Christianity, hard work, community-centered, loving his country patriot who oversaw eight of the most prosperous years in American history and actually did more for racial progress than any other president, probably, in American history, probably post-Reagan, uh, post-Lincoln, I'm sorry. And so I, I'm just a bit, I, I've just you're, been, you're correct. I, I've been reading Eisenhower biographies and basically he thought himself as a role as just the manager of normal America. Like, let's just get back to how things should be. I think that's a really aspirational thing where he didn't he didn't want himself to be just like king of the land. And his exit speech was very prophetic about the military my, industrial complex. My godfather, uh, Rear Admiral Robert Early, I'm named after him. Big, big Eisenhower fan. And when I was running for the state assembly and uh, I, I was being attacked by my own party in the primary and he was going to turn 100 years of age and I was going to miss his 100th birthday. And my mom you know, had died of lung cancer. My dad was in a home with Alzheimer's. So he was basically the patriarch of our family. And I knew I'd miss his birthday. So I went down to go visit him in the house. He'd lived in all 50 years I'd been on this earth. And he was bigger than life, still driving at 99 years of age. Not well, but driving. And I, I get down there and I start lamenting about the condition of California, talking about how I feel like I've led these folks on a rosy road to nowhere. I'm out of money. My own party's carpet bombing me. And, uh, and in the middle of my lamenting, and I've never heard him angry in 50 years, in the middle of my lamenting, he puts his hand up, 99-year-old man, still booming voice, puts his hand up, shaking with age, and he says, stop it. And it, you know, it's nothing like being spanked by a 99-year-old guy. And he just says, stop it. He said, I was 16 years old in the Great Depression. 
you don't know tough. And had not been an appointment to the Naval Academy in 37, I would have never received a college degree. And I was in Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941, and they sank half our Pacific fleet. And you, Rob, being a history major, you don't realize we had the 21st largest military on the face of the earth, and they sank half our Pacific fleet. He said, I pulled my shipmates out of the water. They sank my ship, and my, the, the harbor was on fire. My shipmates were dead. He got a silver star that day. And he said, the next day we took on a two-fronted war against two fascist nations. We lifted that fleet from the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. We floated into Tokyo Harbor to accept the surrender of the Japanese. And then he said, we came back after the war, and we only asked for enough ground in those nations to bury our dead. We were liberators, not occupiers. And we came back and started the greatest industrial revolution in the history of the country. And he looked at me and he goes, quit whining and go finish what you started. Amen. He said, America's greatest days are ahead of it. And at 99 years of age, I, I, I was spanked <laughs> by that man. And I deserved it. And I, I just I have to say to all of our listeners who are, are worried about where America is, the odds were against them then. But you were pointing out that I, I – I, I don't remember who it is that, you, that stated this, but you had the, the American Revolution where the experiment in liberty was in great jeopardy. Now, we survived World War II. We survived World War I. We survived the Civil War. But it hasn't been until right now, Bob, that the nation is at a crisis unlike anything we've seen in history. Do you want to elaborate on oh, that? My, my friend, Ed, Ed Meese. That's right, Ed uh, Meese. My dad worked with him, by the way. And, and He's an uh, American hero. He's terrific. Yeah. And we've been meeting— General Meese, right? We've been meeting every week for 30 years. And, wow. and he made the observation that the two times that America could not, could possibly disappear was the Civil War when those who are our enemies to this day, those who base their beliefs on race, who want to divide the races, don't want Americans to be Americans. He said they, were, they could have destroyed it then. And what we're seeing now is that yeah. same idea. Both yeah. of them are from within. He said, during World War II, we knew eventually we were going to win. We had to resort. They said, but, but those, these are the two times in which America can disappear if we allow them to, to, well, and to I, take I it apart. I think the one, the one thing, and I completely agree, and I've done some serious thinking about this, and I wrote a long piece that I'm about to publish, which is that I, I think we have to get our terms very specific. I'd love your thoughts on it. You might totally disagree, which is unlike in the 1860s, I think this is a revolutionary war, not a civil war. Because I don't think the opposition wants actually to govern the current country good, we good have. Good call. Good call. I think they want to storm the Bastille and cut off heads. Destroy yep. it. And yep. create something new. That's correct. And a civil war typically, and you're right completely about the 1860s, uh, the comparison to the two, but a civil war typically is like, I want to be in charge of the current country, basically. like mm -hmm. I don't think they want that. I nope. think they want to abolish it. They want to wipe America away. Yeah, and that, that's a different – But, but, it, but it's, not, it's not socialism. It's not dissimilar in the sense of the functionality of it. I just think it's important in the sense of we have to call our terms right where they actually have no desire to govern what we currently have, right? And, for example, when, when the Bolsheviks and the Leninites – ran over the Romanov dynasty. They were like, we're not going to keep the symbology of the Romanovs around. Like, that wasn't a thing. We'll pull right? down the statue. Exactly. It, it, when, when the French Revolution, which was Robespierre, was leading you know, the revolution in France, they weren't really keen on keeping Charlemagne's statue around. Right? It wasn't exactly. It was like, no, we're going to destroy it. We are going to literally create new time, which is what they did. We are going to have a 10-day week, not a 7-day week. We're going to have no God. We're going to have our own philosophical and moral code. Ended up being a complete disaster, and that's what led the way for Napoleon. And but that, that's different philosophically than a civil war, like the English Civil War in the mid 1630s, the 1600s, I should say, which, of course, Thomas Hobbes lived through where you win, you, you govern. Right. This is different. This is no. an insurrection. Yeah, they, they want to be totally different. And, and if I could just piggyback on what you were saying there, Rob, about 
Uh, first of all, to, to wrap up uh, about the, the fact that whether or not there was a change, if you listen to them, they'll continue to say, oh, look at your skin color. You need to get down on your knee. Yeah. You need to do this. They continue to look at people in that, in that manner. They say, well, America did that. No, it They say, well, uh, the American military was segregated. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. It wasn't yeah. segregated until Woodrow Wilson. That's right. The first, and he had an opportunity to desegregate it. The, fir the first real, real Democrat after Lincoln. They, yeah, God, we, should, God, we should talk about Wilson. But So he came in, and he's the one that segregated well, the, and, the military. And, and, and Woodrow Wilson, if I may, is revered by the left. I think they just renamed the school at Princeton. I think they just did. And that they're, they're correct to do that because yeah. Wilson was a eugenicist, and he was the first American president. And, Bob, you know this. He was the first American president on record to ever outwardly disagree at the founding fathers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No president until Wilson said, I think they were wrong. He was the first one to do it. And he wrote extensively. So if you look at Wilson, and this is why Wilson resonates on a deep level for me. If you look at his history, people, you ask a regular historian, they say, well, what did, what did Wilson do before he came president? Oh, he was governor of New Jersey. Look deeper. What? He, he ran Princeton. Yeah. He was a professor. He'd been elected for one year. That's right. He was a creature of the, of the university. Correct who then became president, and he th thought himself as a philosopher king. And we got, the, we got rid of direct, direction of, uh, direct election of senators, which was a huge mistake. One of the most Got the Federal Reserve tragic. Act and the income tax, all under Woodrow Wilson, and the disaster of the mishandlings of World War I. And he refused to integrate and desegregate the armed forces. No, he, he, no it, it, it was desegregated up until then. He's the one that segregated it. Well, it's even worse. Yeah, he, he, so he, he, he segregated, he the, segregated the military in World War I, correct, so, so up they, until they that were time. combined up until yes, Woodrow that, Wilson. That's correct. And, and Woodrow Wilson was the, and, and this is a misinterpretation of history, is that you look at the philosophical difference of Roosevelt and Taft versus Woodrow Wilson. Um, I mean, Taft and, and Roosevelt were patriots. I mean, they were friends that ended up running against each other. It's different. <laughs> but Wilson basically wanted to take America in a very almost Leninist direction. Yeah. yeah. And he, he, from that point forward, we really have seen. And, and I, I, I hope I won't forget that, but I, I want to say the one sentence that you said about taking the ground to bury thing. Never in the history of the world, never in world history, has a nation shed blood and treasure for the freedom of another and never ask anything in return. God bless except America. The land to except bury the our United death. States of America. Except the land no nation has death. ever done that. Yeah. So they talk about us being aggressive. They, they teach this in school. And how in the world they get college students, you, you don't have to be very bright to figure this out. But they say that, that, that America is imperialistic and we impose our way around the world. You know, if we wanted to impose our way, we could have owned Japan. We could have owned uh, Korea, etc. Uh, look at South Korea. I, I spoke to the, to the parliament in Seoul some years ago and I was on the Armed Service or on the Veterans Affairs Committee and I pointed out to them that as the World War II generation was passing that the Veterans Administration was dealing primarily with with uh, Korean veterans and that most of my work was helping these Korean veterans who bear in their body the burdens of the sacrifices they made a half over 50,000 men that gave their lives plus the hundreds of thousands that, that now have, have the injuries that come in their later years and I said but in all of my dealings with these American uh, uh, veterans not once have I ever heard any of them ever complain about the sacrifice that they made. And what sacrifice did they make? Only that these Koreans would not be occupied by the Japanese, by the Chinese. Only that these Koreans could be free. No nation has ever done such. There never has been a nation with the goodness and the greatness of the United States of America. Uh, 
since you you allow me to put this as my live stream, I want to do a segue because there's a, a man in our fellowship, and his name is Bob Wilson. He was a staff sergeant at the Chosen Reservoir as a United States Marine, and I think only nine men in his entire company came back alive. And his bride of 68 years just went to be with the Lord, and I'm going to be officiating her memorial service in the next couple of weeks. And, you know, th- th- that was a forgotten war. The Korean War. The Korean War. 36,000 Americans died. But Bob, you— over 50. Is it really? Mm-hmm. But, but Bob, you, you point out one of the greatest examples of freedom is found in the Korean Peninsula. And it's a result of the sacrifice of, of the, the good men that served with Sergeant Wilson that died in the Chosen Reservoir and all the countless military personnel that sacrificed. And you look at the Korean Peninsula and a satellite picture at night, and the bottom half of it is lit with industry, and the top half is pitch black dark. And, and, and you said that most of the Aryan land in that – we explain uh, that? Yeah, with, we're, we're having dinner in the Blue House, which is the White House in Seoul. And the president made the observation. He was talking to my wife, and he said, "You know, when they divided our country the 38th parallel, I said North Korea got 75 percent of the arable land. We got 25 percent of the arable land. Uh, we got most of the mountains uh, and and uh, all of the refugees." He said, uh, it, "They now are perhaps the poorest nation on earth. One of the, one of the poorest." And we have the 10th largest GDP in the world. Same heritage, same culture, same language, same climate. Everything is the same except freedom and socialism. Socialism creates poverty. Freedom creates abundance. And I majored in economics. And so when I was in college, they'd all say, well, why is America rich? Well, it has lots of natural resources. When they have any problems, they move further west. And we're just an industrial type people or blah, blah. These other people, they're not as good, as smart as we are. They need socialism. Okay. Let's just take East and West Germany at the end of World War II. Divided down the middle. Same heritage, culture, climate, language. When the wall came down, the GDP per capita on the West side was 17 times higher than it was on the left. And the, the CIA, by the way, said it was 11. When, we, when the wall came down and they could actually compare, it was 17. North and South Korea, uh, when, when South Korea got its independence in 1953, uh, thanks to the leadership of Dwight Eisenhower putting an end of the war. And G- General MacArthur. And General MacArthur. When South Korea was the third poorest nation on the planet, hmm. third number three from the bottom, and now it's number 10 from, from the top. I want to contribute something, though, which, you know, I as I study this more, and I, I'm a student of economics informally, um, but the more I kind of look more broadly at this, the more I recognize and realize that um, a free economy and private property are instrumental, but it's one piece. If, if you do not have strong and coherent families and flourishing churches, I think that the, the economics are kind of irrelevant to be perfectly honest. And it's not to say that you should sacrifice one for the other. I think they actually work in harmony with each other. But one of the reasons why South Korea has been able to flourish is it's a very Christian country as well. Post the war. Yeah, and post the war, they've had a Christian- Huge missionaries going in there. Massive amounts of conversions. And and Mm -hmm. we shouldn't, you know, I think, look over that. Am I allowed to do a commercial? Of course. Uh, I've, I've synthesized what you just said into a formula. And that is that politics equals integrity plus economics. Those are the only two things that you vote on. The acronym is PI, politics as easy as PI. P-I-E, politics equals integrity plus economics. Now, under, under our system, 
with very, very high integrity. That's, what is the standard for integrity? Spirituality, scripture. Thou shalt not steal. Yeah. Thou shalt, shalt well, not bear false witness. It's declining, but yeah. So, so the principle of, of that is that I, I look you in the eye and I give my word, you're going to honor it. And so those principles of very high integrity and low burden of government, the greater the wealth. Mm. The lower the integrity, the thicker, the least I can trust you, the thicker the contract has to be, the more guards I have to put around, around the business, the more bars I have to put on. The more the, lawyers you have to get. The more lawyers and the more check I, I have, to, have to do to make sure you deliver. If I have, a, if I have a, a, a business in Uganda, the more guards I have to round, the more people I have to bribe to get my goods shipped at, at the dock, in, wherever it is. So the lower the integrity and the higher the burden of government, the greater the poverty. So all we do when we vote is we vote on those two things. And once you understand that principle, you can go to downtown Detroit, the richest city in the world when I was young, and now the poorest city north of the Rio Grande, and you see the collapse of integrity. So everybody's uh, put bars on their windows and, and uh, you're now they even want to do away with the police, et cetera, and very high taxes. And so people say, I'm not going to go there. So the population of of uh, Detroit is now lower than it was in 1900. And there are 38,000 single family dwellings that are abandoned because people don't want to do that. So you can, if you understand that principle, you can yes. make any rich place poor or any poor place rich. Now, libertarianism says, I really don't care about these. If I want to pimp yeah. my, my daughter, if I want to do drugs, if I want to defecate on the sidewalk, if I want to have open borders, if I want to do uh, California, it, it, that is, if I, but I want low taxes, therefore I'm a libertarian. Well, it doesn't work no. unless there is a spiritual value system. Yes. You, you, can have a yes. you can have a zero tax rate in Uganda or, or, or in, in Zaire or, or Congo. Let's say Congo. Congo is overwhelming with, with natural resources. Ma Malachite, which we buy in, in, a, in a jewelry store around here, it's in the sidewalks of, of, the, of the capital city. So it has abundant natural resources, but it's very, very poor. Why? So if, if you had a low tax rate, it still wouldn't prosper because it doesn't have a spiritual right and wrong I think value that's system. exactly right. And that's why our founders put on the wall Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt, and so yes. when you did that, the moral you, did, you didn't have to have well, locks. And, and I, I think it's you, we're a country with an economy in it, not an economy that happens to be in a country. And mm -hmm. prioritizing mm -hmm. the values of what the country is in the ideals, and then saying our economic activity could harmonize with it, it can feed into it. I think the problem with libertarian fundamentalism, of which I have played in those circles for years, is that there's kind of in, at times there's kind of just a almost a, just a deference to the well-being of the country as long as you can just maximize personal indulgence, at least, or at least the freedom to do it. And I actually think that's really destructive for everybody. I think it's really destructive for the whole country, for the innocent, for the well-being. Um, and I do want to ask this other question, Bob, because I think it's really interesting, you being an economics you know, um, savant, which is that how much and I, I've grown to believe that it's played a bigger and bigger role. And you being from Ohio, you know this. Um, I actually believe that economics can feed into the spiritual. Mm -hmm. Where that if you make mm -hmm. such poor economic decisions, public policy-wise, that favor big corporations, that shut down manufacturing plants and shut them to China, that could make people disengage from the spiritual. It can mm -hmm. make them disengage from civic life and tear families apart. So I, I, I think that we as conservatives in the equation sometimes overweigh the social, cultural, and just say, well, the economics have nothing to do with the social, cultural. Do, do you think they both 
contribute? It's like a fiscal conservative versus a social liberal. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, I mean, kind of like both. Kind of like saying if you shut down a manufacturing plant in Hubbard, Ohio, that's going to hurt the church too. That's going to hurt the family. Yeah, it's not just economic. Mm-hmm. The two, the two are essential. And, and if you understand how how the, how they come about, they're they're codependent. So you can't weaken one without weakening the other. So every time we. And you're exactly correct. There's nothing to add to it. You're, you're, yeah. you're right. Well, it's just sometimes conservatives, and not you, would say it's not a big deal that you ship the factory to China because it's comparative advantage. It, the, I went into a, a Starbucks <clears throat> on an early Friday morning getting ready to go to my men's study. And, and Bob McEwen's thoughts are rolling in my head. A young kid in his 20s wearing army fatigues, disheveled because he's been sleeping on the street but healthy as an ox, says, can I have some money? And I look at him and I said, I'll give you money if you can answer one question. And this is Bob's fault. And he goes, what? What's the question? I go, what's money? He goes, it's, it's what you need to buy stuff with. I go, no, man, sorry. And he goes, well, what's the answer? I go, well, since you want to learn, I'll buy you breakfast. Come on in. And we sit down. And he goes, what's money? I said, money is a representation of the contribution you've made to society. You've made no contribution, thus you have no money. And that was the start of a long conversation that ended up having him go to Teen Challenge, get his life in order. But it started with you because you point out how wealth is created and you talk about going into the, the store and you want to buy these shoes because you, wo- you mowed Widow Johnson's yard. Can you elaborate for the folks? Because that's this political savant, how he takes the complex and makes it simple, Charlie. Uh, it, it, it's remarkable and it just has really fed my heart. I, I think that'll touch on what you were alluding to. Well, maybe we should talk about how wealth is created, but how do we keep score is that we have pieces of paper that keep score about that. And so when you go into the grocery store or when you go into the, to the, to the, to the shoe store, you say, I want to have that pair of shoes. He, 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 and you ask, how much does it cost? And he basically says, what have you ever done for anyone that you'd be entitled to these shoes? And you say, well, I mowed Widow Johnson's yard. Uh, well, how do I know that? Uh, well, I have this. And you hold up a $20 bill. What is it? It is a representation of a contribution that I made to someone else. He said, well, that's nice. That's a nice contribution, but that, that's not enough. If you, if you motor lawn maybe three times, yeah, that, then that might be worthwhile. Now, how do I keep track? I have money. And so I make a contribution in which I have made sufficient contribution that he and I come to an exchange, which at the end of the exchange, we are both better off. I am richer than I was before because I'd rather have those shoes than have this money. He'd rather have that money than have those shoes. And we make that ex- exchange in which we are both better off. And if we're not, we don't make the exchange. Yeah. So we have created wealth. So what is a money? A farmer and a baker. So yeah. how, how do I? Yeah. So a, a farmer, uh, a baker has 10 empty ovens. A farmer has a pile of wheat. And farmer, farmer says, I don't need his wheat. And they said, if I had his money, I could buy a new tractor and, and send my daughter to school. And so the, the, the baker says, you know, if I had his wheat, I could make some donuts and, and sell them in the morning. And so the two of them make an exchange, which at the end of the exchange, they are both better off. Yeah. And they have therefore created wealth and that is the only way that wealth is created. That's the only way, through a voluntary exchange. So when I, you vote for me, and I'm going to take his money and give it to you, and you're going to be better off if you just vote for me. That's called socialism because he hasn't done anything for you, and you haven't done anything to, enti- to earn it. Therefore, if he says, if I produce something and it's stolen from me, and you say, if I get it and I don't produce it, this is a great thing. So neither one of you produce and immediately the entire country collapses. And this only happens every 
time. <laughs> and Venezuela, the richest nations in the, in the Western Hemisphere. Argentina at the turn of the century, Cuba, then Venezuela. We've all experienced it, yeah. and that's how you create poverty. Um, so if I can challenge you a, a little bit on this. Please, please. Because I think the I agree with all of that, and I, but I don't necessarily agree with it in recent practice. Um, and it, let's have a conversation about it because the free market fundamentalism, um, the, a lot of the labor that goes into some of this work, they don't have a say when their factory closes down sure in Darby, do. Montana. Sure they do. It's called unions. Well, but we've deindustrialized well, our country. Six million of them well, because of McKinsey decided to you know, put the, yeah, yeah. the plant in China. I guess the question is when does that free market fundamentalism go too far? Uh, it doesn't. It doesn't. The, the, it goes too far when, when somebody makes a deal that that disadvantages the, either the worker or the purchaser. Which, now, but it's happened. Yeah, it absolutely for, has. For oh, but it happens all the time. But, but that, that's why we. That's what the battle. That's what elections are all about. Yeah. And they 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 can make the <laughs> the richest city in the world, as I mentioned when I was young, was was Detroit. You can begin making making decisions that will steal from people without. Without, well, stealing is, is just wrong, period, which is called socialism. That is, I take from you because I have the power to do it. And when you do it, you then destroy jobs and, yeah. you, and you destroy the creation of wealth. But I, I, don't, I, I don't know if we're richer today than we were 10 years ago. No, we're absolutely not. No, yeah. be, because what has happened is that, that and this is where. So the, you and I the, agree on that. Completely. Oh, absolutely. Good. Absolutely. <laughs> we, that's where information is. In a free society, there has to be a free flow of information and yeah. knowledge. And what happened about 25 years ago, uh, that they gave special privileges to if you invested in a certain place. It was namely China. Yes. And so you and I used to put money in a bank, and that bank was then loaned. I got my first loan for my first car when I was 16 yeah. years old. I borrowed $600 to buy a car. And the money in the local Hillsborough Bank in Ohio was loaned to me from people that had put it there, and they built the churches or houses. Beginning in the about 25 years ago, the mortgage banks in New York said, we will pay you more money than Bob McEwen can do it by borrowing on a house. If you will take that money from Main Street America and send it to New York, we will package it and we will That's invest exactly in, right. in China. And in China, we're going to build overpasses and businesses and, and dredge uh, uh, ports. And, With you as leverage. And, and, and in the meantime, we're going to make a bundle because we're getting a, a greater return. The bank will survive, but all the small businesses yes. are going to disappear. Yes. And, and, and only one person only one person. There were there were no Democrats, and there were 16 Republicans running in 2016, and 15 of them said, "Well, that's just the, the way the market works." Yeah, that's what I'm and, getting at. And yes, one, that's one of right. them said, "No, no, 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 no. That's not the way the market works. You're giving a special privilege. Those people they get tax benefits and every other benefit. Uh, in fact, there there's no tax at all. If you make it in this country, you make something in Wilmington, Ohio. We're going to tax everything. We're going to tax everything that comes. We're going to tax the taxes that the trucks that deliver it. Property we're going tax, to tax, FICA, on, everything. On and on and on. But if you will take that money and make that thing in China, then not only that, we'll allow you to send it to Mexico, and they'll bring it across the border debt free. There will be no taxes at all. And that little business there in Wilmington, Ohio, we're going to be able to kill it. So, so my 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 pushback, well, not with you, but generally, is when we describe that as a free market. It's not a free market. You know what I'm saying? It's, and, it's government and, manipulation. Yes. And, and, Th and that's what I'm saying. And Donald that, Trump was smart, smart enough to say, I'm going to quit that. Yes. And Main Street America, places like 
Columbia or places like Mahoning County, Youngstown, Ohio, yes. where there were no Republicans. Eastern I did the, Ohio. I yeah. did the Lincoln Day dinner there. You could put them all in this little room here. There, there were no Republicans. They didn't drive through the place, let alone live there. He carries it <laughs> two to one. He carries it two to one. And everybody, and that's why, ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you, that's that's what blew everybody's mind. The, the, the New York Times, I believe it was the New York Times, a New York newspaper, the following week sent someone to... Youngstown. I remember this story. To say, how in the world it was like, did this ever happen? You know, it was like an investigative journalist they would send to Syria after a bomb went Exactly. Out. Exactly. You know, the, the way they writ, wrote it was like, I'm looking around yeah. at a depraved landscape, asking. And she went basically down, and I think it was Mahona County, right? Uh, yes. Yes. And Youngstown State University is right down the street there. And she said she went into just a deli and she went to the black church. And who'd you vote for? Trump. Who'd you vote for? Trump. Why? Only person who promised to bring us dignity back to this region. And, and basically the way that I brand this is Youngstown, Ohio was tired of having mountains and castles of plastic that meant nothing to them while their school has funding problems and everything, all the, everything that they love has been interrupted because that plant used to be open because they used to make something there, yep, yep. right? And, well, and, and, and this one fella who on a street corner, unemployed, asked him in one sentence, in one sentence, he, got, he said, well, he said, I figured this. I figured Democrats were more interested in some man taking a shower with my daughter in the locker room than they were in me having a job. And, and what's so interesting is that there's two ways, there's a really interesting point I want to go back to with that because I actually think social conservatism is the future of the Republican Party, where some people want it to be the past yeah. of the Republican Party. And I'd love to talk about that because I actually think social conservative values are complete bridge builders and winners in coalitions. Critical. I, and I would love to talk about that because it's so opposite of like the Mitt Romney wing of the party that they want us yeah. to be socially liberal and fiscally conservative. Well, let's wrap up what you're saying here because yeah. that's, that's worthwhile. So, so Donald Trump wins, which just upsets all of the intelligentsia. And, and he, he, he starts to act like a businessman with, who is an American. Mm -hmm. He actually believes he's an American. So he has satellite pictures of 5,000 acres in Mexico that's filled with all of these cars from China. And you can trace where they come. And he takes the picture and he shows it. He gives it to the president of China. He says, president of Mexico, he says, that doesn't stop. We're going to put a stop to this whole thing. <laughs> now, we check that on a regular basis. It's completely empty. I got a better one for you. Liz and I were, my wife and I were, I was on the American delegation of the European Parliament. European Parliament meets in, in Brussels, Belgium. Donald Trump comes in and he says, you know, there are no American cars to speak of in Europe. Why is that? There is a of 20, import tariffs. Of 28% tariff on any car. So you bring an American car, right off the bat, you got 28%. Now they have other things as well. You have to take it apart and have every And also energy stuff. You got to make yeah. it leaders, all sort of stuff. Yeah. So Donald Trump says this. He says, 28%. Uh, that's a good number. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's a very good number. I, th I, th I think we can do that. And so, yeah, I think we got to add 28%. Now, then the Senate, the people that claim to be conservative Republicans, which I call the Bedwetter Caucus, they, they, they immediately run and say, well, you can't do that. My goodness, that's a violation of free trade and all that. Now, when Liz and I were in Brussels the following October, I show her the newspaper. That day that we were going in the European Union, that day, the, get this, well, let's back up. Let's talk about Germany for a second. Germany, the great 
powerful Germany. They're well, always on time. What do they do? They make they make cars. In Stuttgart. Said, well, so they got Stuttgart. They, they have glass and rubber and all these things. But basically, Audis, v, Porsche, VWs, Mercedes, Mercedes, uh, uh, Volkswagen. So so they they make cars from which everything else goes. You hit cars, brother. They're going to fill up very rapidly. And so while we were there, I said, look at this. The German Automobile Manufacturers Association was proposing to the European Union that taxes and tariffs on American cars to the European Union should be dropped to zero. Now I said, now why did they do that? Because George Bush sent him a Christmas card? Because, because Barack Obama went over there and said, we're just really mean people and we're really terrible people. We never should have shed blood making giving you freedom. We were just really awful. No, no. He did it because Donald Trump, who's a businessman, said, fine, well, we're going to put 28% on every BMW. You know how many BMWs are It's going to crash tomorrow. And, they, and these folks went scurrying to their... Yes. Inter- now, now let me, there's more to the story. They then show up last November 5th or whatever it was and they, at the White House and they say that they're willing to do that. If we'll go to zero zero, which would make all the quote economists with no political insight, they oh well that that would be good. As I said, the Bedwetter Caucus would think that was an accomplishment at this point. What did Donald Trump say? I need to think about that. Why? Because he knows that they're dependent on automobiles, and the second he signs an automobile agreement, then when it comes to to, to medical equipment and everything else, they'll start screwing us again. So the the fact of the matter is, he is protecting America, and as a result, yes. America is in a recovery such that that force on in New York, Wall Street, those billions of dollars, those trillions of dollars that have money from all over the world going to China, and China with its military and political forces are at risk to that whole operation that if he gets reelected, they're never going to recover. That, I, right. I, I got to say one more thing. If you will look at the economy, and, and for anybody that has any questions for you guys that got iPads in front of you, go to the St. Louis Federal that, Reserve yeah. and look at the St. Louis Federal Reserve and look at the chart that has the median income for Americans. And you will see in, in, 2000, in 1996, it's 62,000 something. And then you will find 20 years later, it's exactly the same within $200. It's exactly flat. Now, if you look at what's happening in China, China is growing six, eight, nine percent And China is about to overtake us until by God's grace in 2016, there was an eruption. And the president of the United States said, quite it. You're not going to be doing these, these games. Why are we there's a thing called a manufacturing chain. What's the term for it? The, supply the chain. Supply chain. That is, the Chinese were smart enough to figure out that we get these critical pieces that you can't build a Mercedes, Germany, unless you have our little piece from here. You can't make a Samsung refrigerator unless you have our little piece. And so they systematically went around the world getting getting critical uh, uh, components of the compo- supply chain. Yes, but, but, but also the ingredients, the term escapes me at the moment. But nevertheless, in the supply chain, this is they control virtually the entire world. Donald Trump walks in, puts a spotlight on and said, this is nonsense. This shouldn't be happening. And immediately all over the world, people begin withdrawing their, their factories. Americans begin bringing them back home. The economy in China goes down 37%. The economy in America grows 50% from George Washington to Donald Trump. And then it jumps another 50%. With that, they're never going to recover. 
and America will continue to be the freest, strongest nation on earth. Therefore, they have to do everything possible. They have to shut down schools. They have to claim that you're going to die if you look at me and with your face uncovered. They have to they do everything in the world to take power. And if they are able to do that, then we'll be back in the soup again. And if they don't, America will continue to bless yeah. the world. Well, and the interesting part about import tariffs is that all VW and Mercedes have to do is just make it here mm-hmm. and you avoid the tariff. And what they want to do is just make it in Germany. And the conversation around tariffs and fundamentalist free market circles, especially those fringe libertarians, and again, I know a lot of these people, I agree with them on issues of free speech and guns, but when it comes to this, I just, I struggle because I say, there's like, oh, all tariffs are always bad. And I say, well, let me tell you about something. You guys know about the pickup truck tariff. And a lot of people don't know about this. There's a 25% import tariff on the books for all pickup trucks in America, signed by mistake by Lyndon Baines Johnson, pressured to sign it. And he's like, whatever, I'll say. it was part of the chicken tax tariffs. You might re- remember learning about that. It's all these arbitrary tariffs that were signed on. Well, interestingly, the pickup truck was a very obscure vehicle post-World War II. No one had it. No one really understood it. Uh, Mid-1960s. So big tariff. The German cars and the Asian cars decided not to make this stupid car, right? Who cares? So what ended up happening is Ford, Chrysler, and GM, we're like, let's make this car. It can kind of kind of be cool. People go west. It's a little more rugged. It's durable. The only companies in the world that end up making pickup trucks at the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s were American car companies, right? Of course, the Ford pickup truck. Of course, because you make it here. So then Toyota gets, of course, to they want to compete. They say, well, we get wind of this. So they start to lobby Washington, D.C. in the 2000s to try to get this tariff repealed. And they don't. Toyota realizes they're missing a huge market still. Same with Nissan, same with all the companies. So what do they do? They go open up a plant in Tennessee to avoid the tariff, employing all Americans. That's trade at work. And that's a tariff. So that works. 38,000 Americans work in the pickup truck industry. 38,000 jobs that are protected, families that have food on the table. So there's plenty of examples of how you can actually leverage our advantages. And you know what? Here's what I want for trade, in my opinion. I want trade to be like how it is between Massachusetts and Montana. Mm-hmm. Use the same kind of value system, right? You mm-hmm. both know that both sides are going to benefit. When I trade with Shanghai, it's just not the case, right? That's right. When it's Missouri and Massachusetts, you're like, okay, we're, we're both on kind of the same team here, right? I don't feel that way. No. And we're foolish enough that when they take advantage of us, I'll just give you one more. We didn't allow Japan to fly in the internal United States. They could fly to to Seattle and Los Angeles, but they couldn't fly to Chicago and Omaha. And so they kept banging, banging, banging to do that. And so uh, we negotiated that we could fly. We would get additional flights to Japan and they would be able to fly to Chicago and elsewhere. And one of the requirements that they made was that we we would get the food service and repairs would be done at the local airport, which seems naive because it goes to exactly what you said. That is because we think that we're, we're being honest. Folks that are dealing with us, if they can screw us, they, they see that as an accomplishment. Whereas under our spiritual value system, we think that that's wrong. Even though that we, even if we didn't have to do it, we wouldn't think it was right. So what did Japan begin to do? They began to refuse to deliver the food. So you've, you've got a 747 full of people sitting there, and they wouldn't deliver the food a half hour late, 45 minutes late, two hours late. And so people began to no longer until finally the American airlines could not compete. So they come in, and, and I made the complaint to the to the FCC to, or to the FAA explaining to them why this is. They brought in all these American lawyers. Well, that's just the marketplace, and if they're giving better service, they should. No, it's not true at all. They are playing for their best interests, and we had people that were sellouts in America. And I repeat, by the grace of God or some other ex- explanation, in 2016, we got somebody who's on our team, and America's begun to prosper, and we are now involved in a great civil war. 
I feel like a pair of brown shoes with a black tuxedo. <laughs> I'm just I'm digging it. And my, my head's full. That's I have stretch marks on my brain. <laughs> well, I'm excited. Let me just tell you. We we have the – finally people are waking up is like out of a great slumber, and, Can, and just like the rest of the world. With that slumber mm. and that awakening, you're a man of faith. You love the Lord with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. You and Liz just love the Lord. You've raised your family accordingly. You've, you've lived your life with the principles of Christ. You, you, you've adopted. You, you've, you've lived sacrificially what God has called you to. And, and our paths cross just by the grace of God. And, and now, you know, you see what we're having to deal with in California. And you know the, the, the spiritual constraints that are being put on the church in America from the vantage point of being a politician, but more, more than that, primarily being a believer and stepping into the public square and understanding the value of the church and the importance of the church to engage in the public square, give me your thoughts on that, if you would. Anything you'd like to encourage the listeners with, insights you've had, stuff you just want to share. Well, I, I, th- I think— Because Charlie's on his phone, and he didn't have a question, and I, <laughs> I do, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal the— Well, I, 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 do think, I do think that it's, it's a fight. Uh, that that we're we're facing, and uh, just to remind you about who who Winston Churchill was. Winston Churchill was the greatest the man, man of the twentieth century. The, when when the British Empire was collapsing, one person in four on the planet lived in the British Empire, and they decided they were going to be kind and they would weak, the weakness if they just, as my father described it, when the when the, the rabid dog is running at you, you throw away your stick so that he doesn't attack you. And he, he's usually not impressed by that, but nevertheless, that's what Britain did in the 1930s. And uh, when finally, when they're about to disappear and they're done, you can do this in a monar- monarchy. You can't do it in America. The king came in and said to Winston Churchill, said, now that we're all done and the world's falling apart, and uh, how would you like to be prime minister? And so he's, they, they said uh, he drove out of Buckingham Palace. The weight of the world fell upon him. And yet he did two things. <laughs> he, sa- he said that, that uh, he felt that his entire life had been but a preparation for this hour. Mm. And then he went home and slept the sleep of a newborn babe, <laughs> content in the knowledge that finally someone was in charge who knew what they were doing. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, that's but, not ego. But, but, but nevertheless, he uh, and asked him a fellow asked him one time. He said, "How what's the how do I prepare for public office?" He said this. He said, "Study history, study history, study history, for in it you will find all of the secrets of statecraft." And so, let me refer to history. That is, at the end of World War II, when when Woodrow Wilson was six months in Paris. And they, were, they did the Treaty of Versailles. One of the provisions was that on the border between Germany and France, that the Rhineland along the river there, that they were not allowed to have any military armaments because that would be a tripwire. Is that's that Alsace-Lorraine? That's elsewhere, but okay. it's called it's the Rhineland. Rhineland. And, and it's, it's, it's a warning that demilitarized zone that if the British moved, or if the Germans moved in there, that would be an early warning. Here, they're come, France, they're coming after you. Well, uh, Hitler comes along and says, that's our country. Why can you tell me I can't have a tank there? Who says that? And the, the warmark, the, the military says to Hitler, says, no, 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 we, we just got whopped. Uh, don't, be, don't be poking the bear here. We, he said, no, it's our country. We can do what we want. And so he orders the military into the demilitarized zone, into the Rhineland. And when, when he does, we now know on every per- soldier were the retreat orders that if they met any resistance at all, they were to retreat because their army was so worthless and so useless that, get this, the army of France 
alone, not Belgium, Germany, and not Belgium and, and Britain and elsewhere. The, alarm, the army of France was 11 times greater than the army of Germany. But leadership is required. Hitler said there's no leadership on the other side. They're, they're a bunch of pantyways. You watch this. And if I move in there, we'll see what happens. And so he moves in there. All of the old timers said he's, he's a troublemaker. He's going to blow up the world. He's trying to get us back into war. And he goes up there and nobody does anything. And the whole thing begins to shift. Oh, those, those old timers, those generals, they're the ones that lost the war in the first place. We don't want Hitler's the one. He's the one that's going to protect us. He's the one. That, and so he began to realize that now the shift began to come to him. Now, take that model and let me talk about California. Where a fellow comes along and says, oh, by the way, uh, I don't think that we should, uh, we should have barbers wor working on, on uh, this week for the next week and a half. And everybody says, oh, okay, well, then fine. We'll do that. He said, I don't think we ought to go to school. They're, okay, we'll bring all the kids home. Uh, I don't think you got to go to church. Oh, we'll, we'll go to church. And they keep coming up with more and more things. Till now he's running out of them. The governor of, of, of California says, if you go to a parking lot and you're distancing from everyone, you cannot sing. Now, you, And if you're in San Diego, you cannot have a friend over to your own house. They've run out of ways to find a limit where someone will stand up and say no. And that's how oh, they'll find it. That is how freedom is lost. Is freedom is lost is when they keep going until finally they try to meet something, and there has not been that until recently, and we are now about to see it. And if we, if we don't have people that will stand up like Rob, in which we're going to con confront as to whether or not America exists, or whether we rule by individual fiat out of Columbus and Sacramento and Tallahassee, problems that aren't confronted multiply. And that, that is one of the big issues right now. So let's talk about that. We have the weak-kneed Republicans, and you know, I have been very vocal. My listeners know that. And um, surprisingly, there's been, there's been some blowback, but not as much as I would thought would have thought. It's as if the establishment knows it. Mm -hmm. It's been a very bizarre thing. You know, I, you know, usually when I'm critical of the establishment, I get all sorts of different messages and things. And I really don't care. But now it's almost as if they know they're being weak. Mm -hmm. they, they know they have no courage. Mm -hmm. And... It's either they, they're choosing not to do it, like they think it's a thunderstorm and they're just waiting for it to pass, pass yeah. or, or they don't know how to fight, um, or they just have an unwillingness to engage at this very moment. And as we're recording this podcast, Republican governors are shutting their states down again. And I, I want to say the good I want to say the good ones as much as I say the bad ones. I have to make sure I make a habit of that. I always try to do that. But Governor Kemp, God bless him for what he's doing for suing the local municipality saying you can't mandate your citizens to wear masks. I think that's a great step. I think it, that's I'm reading the news correctly. I believe that's what he's doing. It could be the opposite. Maybe I'm praising no, him correctly. Correct. Okay, correct. good. Um, and so also Chris, Christy Nome, incredible. Yeah, absolutely phenomenal. Ron DeSantis has been really good. He's he's going through a tough moment there because everyone's decided to go to Florida with the virus. But I think he's holding the line really well. But there's other states where they're just shutting everything down. And it's it's incredible. They're, they're, I believe the authoritarians are trying to push us until they realize how far they can go. Can I also add that you're seeing at the gubernatorial level, but in my own county, and Bob, you were the one who opened my eyes to this, that the most powerful elected official in any county is the sheriff. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. He's the one who can call martial law. He's, he's the one that can declare disaster. And, and in some of these counties in California, especially in ours, I'm in direct violation of the governor's authority his edict, and, and have continued to be. 
and threatening to have our water shut off or power shut off, a thousand dollar day fine. I mean, it, it, and they have pushed this draconian rule down to the local municipalities, enforcing, holding back funds from the city if they don't enforce these state rulings. But there's there's no legal. Or let me correct that. There's 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 no police force in our county willing to arrest us because our sheriff realizes that this is a violation of constitutional rights. Now, I don't want to put him, you know, uh, 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 in the spotlight. And and I, I can't say that he's publicly declared that, but we haven't had an officer come in to shut us down. And this is going to have to happen in some other capacity. And there's counties all over California that have sheriffs that you look at it as a doctrine of the lesser magistrate. Their, their governors may not be doing it, but these sheriffs are pushing back in defense of their, their citizens within their county. Can local authority have as much power as a governor to, to, to push that up the food chain? And as Charlie's pointing out, we, we want to see it from the federal level and we want to see it from the gubernatorial level. But I think every level of government can resist, can't we? Yes. And, and we've never experienced this before. We've never had anything close to this. And, and let, me, let me just put around as to, as to why good people are succumbing to it. And if I may recommend a little book that's, that you read at one sitting, it's about a quarter of an inch thick. It's called How Do You Kill 11 Million People? It was a byproduct of a conversation I had with a very good friend of mine by name of Andy Andrews, in which he was always frustrated at how these, he would see these Jewish families getting on these boxcars. And you'd see at the en end of the dock, you'd see some guy with a gun, some Nazi soldier somewhere. He said, but these people could have overrunning in a minute. How did it happen? And he basically explains what happened here, and, and that is that you use fear. And that is you need to move into this section of town in Warsaw because in order for you to be safe, in order for you to be safe, you need to be because we want to keep you safe. That's why right. are you putting these walls around? Well, we, we want to keep you safe. Well, why are you, why do you have to have guards at the entrance? We can't come out. Well, we don't want any folks coming in here and harming you. We want to keep you safe. Why must I have this ticket if I'm going to keep you safe? And so then they would call the fathers together. And they would say, now, now we have some bad news to report, and that is that the Russians are coming, and, and it's no longer safe here. But we have a place that's much, much better. It's called Dachau. And, 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 and well, but it, it, you're going to have better jobs, and you have better homes. And so what we need you to do is go home and inventory what you have but, so that we can come back and get it, the piano and things. But, but we need to move quickly. And so we, just one night, overnight, will be fine, just enough. But it, the, your wife and your children are going to follow your lead. And so if you're calm, then they'll be calm. If you're upset, then it's going to be chaotic. And let me just tell you this. Uh, we're going to get on a, on a boxcar, and it's going to be uncomfortable. And for the two or three months or two or three hours, it's going to be uncomfortable. But at the end, you're going to have a better home and you're going to have better uh, jobs and it'll be, it'll be much safer. And for safety's sake, uh, you need to line up and to walk on here. So how do you control people? Through fear. You lie to them. Subsequently, the scripture said, and there is always a direct correlation between man's spirit and all of these things that we talk about, government and economics. And so that 365 times it says in scriptures that, that to fear not, not, because God knows that, that we, are, we are fearful. That's right, one for each day. And then when, when, when Christ comes in the most momentous time in history and, and the, 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 the shepherds are there in the field and the angels show up, the very first words out of their mouth, fear not. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. So man knows 
God knows that man is subject to fear. If you, if I can scare you, then I can manipulate you into literally walking your children into a death chamber. And what you will hear everywhere is not is do these masks uh, are they productive? Are they beneficial? It's to be safe. We're taking the risk to be safe. Shut down the schools. All the chaos that's happening. The, the, the autistic children are regressing two and three years every month. It's, it's a terrible thing that's happening. Well, but in order to be safe, in order to be safe, and and they scare people into giving up their freedom, and that's what was never the case for Americans in the past. Th- Thomas Hobbes wrote about this in the Leviathan, that if you want to control a citizenry, strike them with fear. It is the number one human motivator. We knew that we know this. It's really interesting. When I, when I first went through the uh, eighth grade, there was a whole month. One thing that my public middle school did very well is they taught the horrors of the Holocaust. And I'll never forget, I challenged my teacher and I said, I don't understand how this could have happened. And throughout high school and throughout the beginnings of Turning Point, I, 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 got, I came to better grips so that I visited Dachau and I understood. And two, two parts of this was when I visited Dachau, it got harder for me to understand because when you go there in um, north, northern uh, Munich, where the, one of the few concentration camps still that they didn't demolish because they demolished almost all of them, they have a very old apartment building right next to it. And in fact, it's about 80, 89 years old. And I asked the tour guide, I said, how old is that building? And I said, oh, yeah, it goes back to like 1920. And it's about eight stories high with a direct view into the concentration camp. And I said, wait, you're trying to tell me that just like everyday German citizens went home every single day and what they saw out their window was not a beach, a park or people strolling, but a concentration camp. Like, yeah. So think about that, right? So you think about a whole multiplex, multi-story apartment building where German citizens would open up their window every morning and night and see Dachau in an Mm -hmm. urban center. So just think about how chilling that is. Mm. Second, so then that didn't make a lot. So the first thing was the abdication and the normalization of the other by the citizenry. The second of which, which now I fully understand. For the first time in this shutdown I've seen, I'm like, now I see how totalitarianism comes through. I get it. No more confusion. Nothing but clarity. People will do what they are told. They will obey. Bob pointed out when I was lamenting over this and trying to figure out a roadmap to lead the congregation, your your wisdom was so valuable to me when you pointed out that it's knowledge that dispels fear. And as we give them facts, and we would bring in doctors and psychologists, and we've done 110 live streams, it did wonders for the congregation to be able to turn off this, you know, censorship and, and just look at facts and process them. And, and it dispelled their fear. And I, I can't tell you how invaluable that was to our fellowship, Bob. It was brilliant. Your counsel to me. If we survive, if we get through this successfully, years from now, we will look back at this and, and they will ask the same questions. You mean it, it was a tenth as much as the flu? And people shut down their businesses and lost their jobs. And suicides went up dramatically. And and, and, and teenagers canceled their spring sports, their fall sports, their summer activities, their prom, their commencements. You had social isolation, alcoholism, cocaine use, marijuana, all of that go through the roof. All considered essential by the government. All considered essential. Strip clubs open in Manhattan, but not churches. Easter and Palm Sunday canceled. Weeks and months on end of pastors abdicating. And in the midst of it, we decided to take just a little time out so we could all go on the street for race riots to say how awful of a country we are with no masks on, millions of us saying how much we hate the country. Then we went back inside after that halftime show of race riots. No, no, no. no. We went back in time after the halftime show 
to cancel the celebration of our nation's birthday. That, no, that's right. Birthday. So, so just so when we write the history, people will be so perplexed and puzzled. You know, I always I, it's a very interesting thought exercise. And John Rawls used to do this incorrectly. He was an awful, silly, foolish philosopher. He's Bill Clinton's favorite philosopher. That tells you everything you need. But he always said we need to look at, and he's not wrong on this thought experiment. He was wrong with how he had the conclusion. Look at things from an like an alien's perspective. Like if someone came from outer space and you try to explain this to them. And I thought of that the other day. I said, wow, this would be a really hard thing to explain because if the alien got the whole picture, they say, wait, you're a really wealthy, vibrant country. Like, why do you have so many people that hate your country? <laughs> like, it would be really hard to explain, yeah. right? Yeah. From someone just materially outside. And it's hard for someone from another country to explain, but it's even harder if someone just came and they said, my goodness. And if you were to try to explain, wait a second, you locked yourself up for something that has been proven that young people cannot, young, young people cannot carry it. They're not little virus reactors. Young people are not at risk of dying. So you shut down the schools, you shut down the social fabric, and then you just disregard all of that for like three weeks. You, for, avoid, you avoid medicine that wants you to be exposed yeah, to build immunity. Pr- precisely. And then you avoid all of it for three weeks between late May and mid-June to just go on the streets. And you've mm-hmm. seen the imagery. I mean, people are packed together. And then we're told once the virus increases, that had, that had nothing to do with it. And so it's really interesting because I think we make a little mistake. I did a podcast on this. Is We say the left lies. And I think that's probably true, but it's not the most true statement because it's actually much more Orwellian than that. So for example, Rob, if I go up to you and I'm like, hey, uh, you know, I see you eating Oreos. Like, hey, how many Oreos did you eat? They're like, oh, I only ate three. When you really you ate 10, that's a lie. Okay, well, okay. Yeah, you're true. Yeah. Thanks for exposing me, but go ahead. But then if I went up to you and I said, hey, Rob, how many Oreos did you eat? And you have, you know, crumbs all over your face. You're like, I didn't eat any. You did. That's doublespeak. That's Orwellian. It's not a lie. It's an, inc- it's an inverse of the truth, right? So a lie is something that is degrees off from what is true. Doublespeak is Orwell theorized. He created a new word, doublethink and doublespeak, of something that is so reflectively wrong and untrue that it doesn't even warrant the same categories. That's what they do to us. That's like, correct. It's like where you say, they, they, you know, we ask the question, they ask like, well, you know, we say America's a great place. And then they come and they say, no, you're a racist. Like, wait, what? <laughs> Just in America's a great place. What are you talking about? And we don't even know how to deal with it. And what Orwell theorized is that it's actually so asymmetrical for the human consciousness psychologically. Like, we're actually not capable of being able to deal with it. And so Orwell was probably the most incredibly prophetic dystopian author. And he was a once a socialist, and then he actually went and saw what the socialists were all about, and he just became kind of classical liberal. He famously said that socialism is much more about hating the rich than helping the poor. Like it's such a beautiful summation. That's true. And in eighty four, in nineteen eighty four, he basically painted his picture, and in his further writings, he said human beings are not prepared for double think or double speak. They're not. No. Because you you see this right, and he said that's how you're going to control people in the submission, is when you say something that is so just. Like, what? What did you just say? Like, I didn't eat the, I did not eat the Oreos. Like, I did, you're eating them. Like, I see it. It drives a person mad. And it's, it's, it's by intelligent design that the left is doing this right now. That's powerful. You're exactly right. It's got me baffled. You're exactly correct. Yeah, that's where we are. And so, because we're, we're, we know how to do lies. It's almost like a conversation between two, three-year-olds. No, yeah, in some ways, but you know, it's not incorrect. It's not incorrect because if you read, if you read the romantic, the romantics, right, of the 1800s, and I don't like that term romantic because I call it the infants. It really is because if you read like Jean-Jacques Rousseau, he wrote very clearly that he, he values the primitive over the civilized, mm-hmm. the infant over the adult, 
the passionate lover over the the loyal spouse. He said that the things that we have designed in Christian society are wrong. And it's not that it's not that they're not desirable. It's like, no, you should reject them. And in some ways, when people say, like, the left is a petulant child, it's actually very true. And, and so what did the Smithsonian do? Exactly that. So, yeah, so exactly. So the Smithsonian comes out, and I got very heated about it, where they say all these things that are constructs of Western society. And we believe all men are created equal, but it would be foolish to say all cultures are created equal. I mean, that's mm-hmm. a... Of course, there's a cultural hierarchy, and it's not racist at all to say that. It's based in history. I mean, we are just not the same culture as Islamic Iran. <laughs> I'm sorry. Like, but, but, but they said hard work, showing up on time. That's right. So, so what they say is Stay, staying married. None of those are all yeah, white things. Yeah, they say fidelity. So, so it's really interesting. And the way I should have handled it on cable television, and I handled it, I think, pretty well. It went viral, and I've gotten tons of response because I was up against a white liberal who said all those things. And what I should have said is, like, so Leslie, let me just be straight. You say, let me make straight. You say, speaking correctly, showing up to work on time, um, not committing crimes, going to church, like very basic Being things. Being faithful to your spouse. Are all terms of whiteness. And I say, so you believe this. She does. It's like, you, what you are saying is fundamentally no different than a KKK member in the 1920s. That's exactly. Correct. And that's, that, that's the point I that's missed, correct. right? That's exactly is that if correct. you actually think what is righteous and what is good is an attribute of a skin, I did call her a racist on air because it's true. Yeah. But it's no different than Margaret Sanger in the eugenicist movement. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, only white people are capable of showing up on time, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that—that's what our tax dollars for the Smithsonian were saying. Yeah, and it's so evil. It just while you're on on that point, the greatest correlation between income and any other factor—not race, education, gender—is vocabulary. And so if a person starts pronouncing proper English, they'll attack that kid and say, well, you're acting white, to force him from being successful. That's correct. That is racism. And Republicans don't do that. No, we but don't. But we do know who does. Well, I mean, and the greatest example of this, the greatest example is the phenomenal hero of Clarence Thomas. So Clarence Thomas, so that depiction of the Smithsonian you mentioned was a project of the National American Af- African American History Museum, right? Interestingly enough, the one African-American they don't have in there is Clarence Thomas. Correct. It's incredible. And so Clarence Thomas being someone who the reason he does not speak is, and his biography will tell you this, and his biographer will tell you this, is he grew up in the antebellum South, and he actually learned a different form of English. Now, he's brilliant, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but at times, and you know Clarence, you know the family, and, but he's an American hero. But according to the left, he shouldn't exist. It's now, it's now available for those that are watching it in his own words as a documentary in which it describes that. He's written more, he's written more opinions than any m- member of the Supreme Court and uh, has made a tr- tremendous contribution. And as such, uh, unless you go with leftist or- orthodoxy, all book burning is done by socialists. All shouting down is socialist. And I don't know if we have time to, to go through for it. We've got a couple it, minutes. It's it why, why it is. See, truth overcomes error that's that's why error hates truth so you and i can say this room is 17 feet wide you say it's 16 and you say it's 13 and we can and we're all happy until somebody comes and measures it and that person that measures it says well it's, it's actually 12 then immediately all of us know that we were wrong therefore we hate the person that revealed we were wrong as long as we could philosophize forever as long as you say it's 13 and i say it's 17 and he says 50 we're happy to be. but once you have truth 
then it reveals error and error hates truth. That's number one. Number two, truth overcomes error. So I'm representing a person and, and uh, is accused of stealing an uh, ATM machine. And the attorney gets up and she says why he wouldn't even think of such a doing thing. thing. He uh, loves his mother and he was having dinner with his sister in Portland, Oregon. Here's the receipts from the, from the filling station or from the restaurant where they were. And they go on. And, and you don't care what she says because when she's finished, you're going to have a security camera that shows him driving up to the ATM. And you'll see him put a chain around the ATM. <laughs> you'll see his face as he leans over the camera. And you'll get his fingerprints as he pushes the finger. And, and, and the truth will overcome the error such that the only way she can succeed, she has to prevent the presentation of truth. And every time on these talk shows, when you Throughout start the evidence, when, when yeah. you start to make a point, they start talking over talking. You. If you, you let one little conservative, you can have 57, 57 liberals come speak at a college campus. You let one little conservative come, they all scream and yell and break everything. Why? Because truth overcomes error. It's really and well put. In our scriptures, where does truth come from? What's the measuring lot? And so our. Well, he our, was the embodiment of truth. So our founders, I am the truth. Therefore, you can talk about any religion you want, but not Christ. So I can pray at inaugural in the name of Mother Earth and flowers and eagle feathers and, and nobody cares. But you pray in the name of Jesus Christ and all hell breaks loose. Why? Because I am the truth. And so we hold these truths to be self evident. All men are created. Now, who's a creator? John 1 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word. All things were made by Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. And so, therefore, that is our Creator gave us life, gave us liberty at the same time. So they get, they want to get rid of God. So then they can take innocent life. So then they are in the process of taking our liberty. And one party is dedicated to doing that, to taking God out of the Pledge of Allegiance, to taking God out of all those references. Who then supports the taking of innocent life? You cannot be. Not only can you not be a candidate for office and support life. I met with a series of Democrat consultants, and these Democrat consultants explained to them that they, when they go to, if they support a Democrat candidate for office who is pro-life, that they will be blackballed by the National Committee. They'll never be able to do it again. So the, the Democrat Party is committed to doing away with God, with life, and of course we have this confrontation with our liberty. And uh, the only person that says that the, the parties are all alike are a person that doesn't know about either one. I was thinking it'd be a good thing to kind of close with um, from my vantage point, because I'm kind of the observer of the three. And Charlie, being here with you in in Phoenix and witnessing kind of the updates of Turning Point, and then Bob spending time with you and seeing how God's just remarkably used you and and just this wisdom that you're imparting and, and the combination, it's like nitro and glycerin, this is going to be profound for the young people of, of the country. But Charlie, at 18 years of age, I get to hear the story. You go and set up a, a, a coffee table, and you, you confront deception and lies. And, and then here we are, you're 26, and a profound change has occurred. And something's happening beyond anything you could have ever mm -hmm. dreamed. That's right. And, and what, what hit me as Bob was talking is that if all the lights in this room were to be pitch black— and we were to seal every nook and cranny where we couldn't see our hand in front of our face. You'd light one candle, and that would be the focal point of the room. Because no matter how much darkness prevails, one light, it becomes the focal point. People are drawn to it like moths. Mm. 
and and I I want that to be an encouragement to to the listeners of viewers that when you're on the side of truth and you light that candle it doesn't matter how much darkness prevails it becomes the center point of the room stand with that light that candle amen let it let it let it be a beacon for folks to be drawn to yeah. don't despair over that and and the last point is this is I want to piggyback and I know we yeah. have, we have to wrap is people say well what can I do what can I do and I, I have a very strong opinion about this and even more so don't allow lies or injustice to come across your radar screen without you doing something Amen. about it stand and so but it's even the little things right and I'm the type of person that if I see the strong abusing the weak I get involved that that means if I see someone at a grocery store who's abusing a kid I say something right if I see someone at the side side of the corner doing something incorrectly to an elderly person I say something now those are actually uncommon because we live in a very decent country but more commonly when I say someone say something that's untrue about my country or about God I do something about it yeah and that doesn't mean you have to pick every single fight, but someone listening to this knows exactly the fight that they've been delaying. Yep. Or not it's not a fight in the sense of being, you know, it's a fear. It, it's a fear that's paralyzed. No, but, them. Right. Or or it's, you know, boy, I keep going to that Bible study and they just keep saying things about BLM. But I, I listen to this show and I know better. Then the problem that doesn't confront multiply multiplies. The reason you get a Vladimir Lenin is not just because Lenin got exported from Austria and ended World War One and had a sinister Marxist ideology. No, it was, it was he, it was all the little mini injustices and mini totalitarians that existed. It was the millions of people that then became oppressive to their wife. It was all the mini Lenins that then populated the country. It's like, oh, he could do that, then I could do that. Mm -hmm. And so all of a sudden, you, you, you have you, if you, if we're a country from the, I think I bet the best, I know the best change comes from the bottom up. And so everyone's like, ah, oh, what can I do, macro? Like, what if you did something that's just being a heroic, normal person? <laughs> yeah. Where And someone's like, oh, should I run for Congress? Like, that that's probably an overstep for most people, honestly. Let your like, light so shine before men. Yeah, but how about, like, when you're at dinner with your family, yeah. you don't you, respectfully, compassionately, and lovingly, you make sure everyone is very clear about everything we've talked about here. And they don't have to agree with you, but they're exposed to it. And then the truth will let it just fester. Yeah. It just will. And and so I'm a big believer in that. And I think that we as conservatives kind of allow that to just just kind of all these injustices that come across our radar screen so often. When you That's stand when you stand in truth, God expands yeah. the tent stakes Amen. and gives you a greater influence. And you're a perfect example of that, Charlie. And you too, Bob. Well and it's honored to be with you guys. But it's easy oh, to get dispirited. It's easy to get disgruntled. Like, oh what what, what is what? It, it, it's less about winning at times, that little it's more about doing the actual act of standing. God wins. We just got to stand. Yeah, that's right. So, all right, uh, Bob. We, we want to wish Rob our admiration, respect. Rob's for, an American hero. For He's an American pastor. And, and uh, this, this has got to come to an end so that we can historically look back to it with the era that it is. But people have to begin to stand, and you're the one that's standing, and we're going to pray and, 
and encourage you as you proceed. Thanks, Because this country is worth saving. The entire world, I'll just tell you, in 2016, I think I did nine presidential prayer breakfasts around the globe. Wow. And as they would go to meet, you have the represent the diplomatic corps and the parliament and the administration, and they would always pray for their own country. In Ukraine, they prayed for about the invasion from the Russians, et cetera. But they always prayed for the leadership of the United States of America. The scripture says, if you take a city, you must bind a strong man. There's only one strong man in the world. The world knows you take down America, everybody else is a piece of cake. And it is a they, there's nothing they can do about it except pray and hope. We have it in our hands to make sure that we show up and bring others with us to re- preserve this, the greatest hope in the history of man. Can I close in prayer? Uh, yeah, but first, Bob, is there any way that you want uh, people to stay in touch with you? Anything? You oh, want yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm beginning, I'm beginning to, to get over the hump of being able to say that as I hear people ask questions, the, the DVD, Politics Easiest Pie, does explain these things. The scriptural underpinning and why some nations are rich and some nations are poor, why some people are rich and why some people are poor. And so at uh, bobmcewen.com. They could uh, they could get a copy of that, and I think it might be helpful in, in the arguments, particularly grandparents or something that want to give it to their grandchildren or have a, a template in which someone could say, why is America wealthy? When you go across a river and suddenly everything falls apart, there's no air conditioning, and you can't drink the water. I say, why is that? The ground hadn't changed. The air hadn't changed. Something changed, and America is the testimony to that. Rob? Oh, for me? Close us in prayer and also tell us. Uh, oh, yeah. you on Instagram. Rob underscore McCoy underscore is my Instagram. Amen. Let me pray. <laughs> Lord, thank you for Charlie. Thank you for Bob. And thank you, Lord, for all the folks tuning in that just have a love for this nation and realize that this is a great gift from you, that this is a nation that cherishes liberty, and liberty is not man's idea. It's your idea. And you've come to set the captives free, and upon this we stand, and we can do no less. And so, Lord, I I pray that you would just continue to create this awakening across the land and cause men and women to be dispelled that their fear would dissipate and that faith would rise and that they would realize that one person in God constitutes a majority. And, and if, Lord, they fear you, they don't need to fear anything else. So, Lord, do this awakening. We, we implore you. We beg you. And I thank you again for these men. And we ask your blessing in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Here, here. Thank you both. Hey, guys. Thanks for watching. For more information, head over to VintageMcCoy.com or follow us on Instagram at the McCoy. We'll see you there.